Today's reading will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Brian. Morning, Redemption. Hey, I want to talk a little bit more about the backstories thing. Um, and to give you a, a little more insight as to my vision for that, we're going to try and do that once a month. Um, as I sit and watch the uh, All of Life interviews on Sunday morning, which normally take four to six minutes, uh, most of those All of Life interviews, uh, I, know, I know so much more about what's really going on in their lives than what we're able to present in four to six minutes. I know all the backstories. And what happens in the four to six minutes here every Sunday is really significant and really helpful, and I know that. Um, but if you, I, I, I sit there, for six years I've been sitting there thinking, if you only knew the deeper stories, you would really appreciate and be encouraged by what's going on. And so essentially that's my vision, is I want to be able to start interviewing people from our congregation and go deeper with them. And normally, uh, normally what I think we're going to do is, is we're going to have... Um, two people that I'll interview that are kind of complementary or similar in some ways uh, on these Thursday nights uh, from our congregation that will go deeper, and I think you'll really be encouraged and inspired by these things. However, the first one that we're doing won't look quite like that. It'll be backstories, but it's going to be somebody who's not from our congregation. It's Josh Butler, who started with Redemption Tempe back in August and who has now written three books. The third one is just in the process of being published. And you've heard me quote from Skeletons in in God's Closet, a fantastic book that he wrote a few years ago. Um, His backstory is absolutely magnificent. And I spent 90 minutes with him this last week just meeting and kind of going over, not scripting it, but going over some of the questions that I wanted to ask him And as we started to unpack this even more, I got nervous about the fact that we may not have enough time in 75 minutes to do everything we want to do. It'll be 75 minutes, I promise, but I'm telling you, you you're not going to want to miss this. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to um, record it either, so ordinarily we're going to try to record these, but he's got a couple of stories that he would just prefer not to be available on the internet, so I don't know if we're going to not record or if we're just going to turn off the recording at that time. So again, if you're kind of thinking, well, I'd like to go, but I can always just listen to the podcast. I can't guarantee that we'll have a podcast on it. But anyway, I I think it's going to be really, really good and really, really helpful. We'll talk a little bit about his book, but we're going to talk a lot more about 
uh, Josh's story, his story toward faith and, and how that has transformed his, his life in an incredible way. And I will tell you how blessed Redemption Church is to have him at one of our uh, congregations. So that's all of that. Um, this is Trey. Do you all know Trey? <laughs> have you all been nervous and awkward having him just standing there behind me this whole time? Okay, so... Uh, Trey is transitioning from intern to resident. He's actually coming on uh, staff now, and he's going to be a resident, so he's committing to at least three years uh, with us. Remember, our last resident was Dave Massey, and before Dave Massey, we had uh, Sean Myers, who's the uh, pastor at uh, Redemption Peoria now. Uh, Dave, Dave Massey went on to become a chaplain with the Air Force. I have no idea what it's in his future, but at any rate... Um, <laughs> One of the things that a resident does is he shadows the lead pastor for one day. That's part of the, um, that's part of the training. So he's just going to be, all right, you're taking this thing too far. Go, go sit down. All right. So anyway, there's. <laughs> uh, all right. So we are in the midst of this series that we did. We started uh, in January. Uh, named after Paul Miller's book, Love Walked Among Us. All of the Redemption churches are doing this uh, series, and we're pretty much on the same schedule. Um, and it's been a, it's been a, a great series. I, I approach this series, I'll be honest with you, with some level of trepidation. Uh, dealing with Jesus in the way that we're dealing with him is honestly something I've never really done before. Uh, I feel more comfortable dealing with Jesus and my own inadequacies by going fast. And this series is calling us to slow down and really take a slow, uh, methodical, maybe a, a word for it, uh, look at who Jesus is, his life, his compassion, and how he expresses love in every single context that he was ever in. Um, and and the, the inadequacies that I felt and the trepidation I felt has been overwhelmed and overcome by the fact that the material in this has been so good and, and the fact that um, we, we've purposefully ha asked uh, several other people to speak into it. Josh has preached in this series, the, the guy who was up here being interviewed for uh, the All of Life interview. Cody is, has spoken a couple of times into this series and it's just been, I think it's been magnificent. So this is what we're doing and now we, we enter into a passage where you're kind of, I'm asking the same question, just like last week when, when uh, Cody preached on, you know, Jesus refuses to go to the Feast of Booths. How does that express his love? And then Cody was able to unpack that. Here's another one. It's, this is a, kind of a famous, iconic passage about the temptation of Jesus that we find in both Luke and, and Matthew. And, and you say, well, how does this express his love? And we're going to eventually get that. But let's just dive in and, and at least um, set the context. So... Uh, let's see, let's read the first two verses again and start to unpack it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's interesting. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. So one of the things that I want, I want to encourage everybody in is, is to be a good reader when you're reading the Bible. Um, don't just read the text, but start asking questions of the text. What's the text behind the text? What's the backstory? Uh, what is the setting? What's really going on? And, and, and when you do that, you begin to understand that this is not just some 
um, isolated incident of temptation for Jesus. But in fact, this was part of Jesus' preparation for his mission and his ministry. Understand, the Holy Spirit, God, led Jesus into the wilderness. So you have one member of the Trinity leading the other member. This, here you go. This reminds us that the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are yielded towards each other, are submitted towards each other in a beautiful example of how we are also supposed to be submitted toward each other in the body of Christ. One member of the Trinity leads the other member of the Trinity into something that's going to be very difficult. Just consider that alone. This was God's idea to lead Jesus into the Spirit and have him tempted. And and that word tempted in some contexts, and maybe even here, is actually better translated as tested. But I want you to understand the connection between the two. When you are tempted, is it not a test? So, so, so there's a connection there. Tempting and testing are often the exact same thing. Now we need to understand there is some nuance here. God never tempts anybody directly. And if you want a passage that helps you understand that, write this down. It's James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. God does not tempt us, but he allows temptations in our lives. He will allow them, and in this case, he's causing them because he wants us to be tested and prepared. He wants us prepared and developed and strengthened in our faith. And that's James chapter 1 as well, verses 2 and 3. James, right out of the gate, he barely has time to greet the people he's writing. I'm James, you're the ones receiving the letter. And he says, consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. That word trial is variously translated in other places in the New Testament as tribulation, as testing, as challenges, as suffering, and as temptation. When you are tempted by sin, you are experiencing a trial. You are experiencing a tribulation. Consider it all joy when you encounter these trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith. The purpose of it is to test your faith. And as your faith is tested by these various trials, it will produce something in us, James. He says, because you know that it will produce in us perseverance. That word translated perseverance is also steadfast or endurance or patience. So testing and tempting is actually part of our preparation, our development. It it, it makes us better, okay? Like anything that's worthwhile in life, you and I know this. We need training. We need testing. We need discipline. We need stretching beyond our comfort. We need challenges. Human beings do not grow without testing. We don't. We don't learn without testing, without trials, without challenges. And I know some of you are thinking, same thing I would often think. Well, Jesus is God, though. I mean, really? Does he need? Yes, because he's also fully human. His humanity also needs to be developed and tested and strained, just like you and I 
He is fully God, but he's also fully human. This passage here is more about Jesus' humanity than it is about his divinity. We need to understand that perspective as we go into it. And so we understand that testing is part of, of being developed and prepared in life. Here you go. Do you, do you all really want health care providers who have not been tested, trained, and challenged? See, see, right away, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I get, I get that. Do we really want tax accountants who are not tested, trained, and challenged? If you're going to run a marathon or you're going to enter a boxing ring, won't you fare better if you've been tested, if you've been trained, if you've been challenged? Yes! You see, we get this. You and I get this with every single aspect of our lives with one exception, our faith and spirit life. We don't get it here. Our position here is God's just supposed to make our life easy. God's just supposed to fix everything. There's something wrong with God when he doesn't make my life easy, comfortable, and convenient. But God allowed the testing of his own son. You know why? <laughs> Write this down. This is, this is revolutionary. Okay, you're, you're not, you're not going to hear this anywhere else, okay? This world is hard. It's hard. We need to be tested. And this is also interesting because this is Satan's early attempt to derail God's plan for redemption. Satan knows what's going on. So he's, he's trying to derail this plan for redemption early on. If he can, get, if he can fix this before it even gets started... He's going to be one happy camper. And God knows the challenge is coming. And God doesn't run from the challenge. He doesn't try to avoid the challenge. He doesn't plan some easy, easy workaround, which is mostly what we try to do with challenges, right? When the challenge comes, we're trying to figure out how to go around the challenge. It's just like in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is a reminder that God's standard operating procedure is not to remove us from the challenges, tribulations, trials, and challenges of life, but to walk through these challenges with us. And here you go. That is genuine love. That is love. And it, and it reminds me again, and, it, and it's interesting, I've been reminded several times of this quote from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in this series, but it especially in this one reminds me, and apparently it reminded Paul Miller too, because he had it in the chapter in his book. Uh, it's when Susan goes to um, Mr. Beaver, and, and she says, I'm really nervous about meeting this lion. Is the lion safe? And, and Mr. Beaver says, of course the lion isn't safe. Who ever said anything about the lion being safe, but the lion is what? Good. The lion is good. See, you and I equate goodness with safety all the time. Good, safe. Boom. We don't ever equate goodness with challenge, goodness with discipline, goodness with preparation, goodness with the things that we need to do. God is good, but he's also risky. And here you go. I, look up, I want you to hear this. God is good, but he's also risky. And quite frankly, that's why some people don't want anything to do with God. They want God based on their definition of what is good. And the minute that risk enters it, that's one reason why people will turn and walk away from God. You just have to understand that. Okay? You know, it's, it's interesting. This is done also. Think about how God arranges this. The conditions are stacked against Jesus when, when 
the devil comes to him. Okay? He, he didn't just, Jesus didn't just have a nice full meal <laughs> when Satan comes to him. He's been out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. He's been alone for 40 days when this test comes. See, you and I need to be ready all the time. We need to be ready in season and out of season. So here you go. Most of you get this physically. You're very upset if you miss your hour at LA Fitness or running on the canal banks or whatever. But it doesn't bother you at all if you haven't prayed in two weeks. It doesn't bother you at all if you haven't read scripture in a month. But you're freaked out if you, if you miss your session at LA Fitness. So are you doing your spiritual aerobics? Are you doing your spiritual cardio? And at the risk of inciting all the freaks out there, are you doing your spiritual CrossFit? Okay? Sorry, I'm kidding. We always talk about how the devil came to tempt Jesus when he hadn't eaten for 40 days. He tempts him with food. We always talk about that. I never hear anybody talking about the fact that the devil came and tested Jesus after he'd been praying for 40 days. Right? Jesus was ready. He was weak physically, but he was depending on his father. He was depending on God. That's what Cody talked about all last week. Dependence on God. And of course, the illusions here are so strong. There is great parallelism throughout these 11 verses to the 40-year Exodus wilderness experience of the Israelites. They were in the wilderness. Remember, this is 1,400 years earlier. The Israelites were in the wilderness, so was Jesus. For the Israelites, it was hard, challenging, and unpleasant to be in the wilderness. Jesus wasn't exactly comfortable here either. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 says that God led the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years. We're told here that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. God led the Israelites into the wilderness to be tested and tempted. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and tempted. Moses prayed and fasted for 40 days before he received the law. Jesus does the same thing before he begins his full-fledged ministry. And so now the context is set. So let's go. Next two uh, verses, three and four. And the tempter came to him and said, another word for the devil, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, look, at how, look at how the devil goes right at the designation of Jesus as God's son, the son of God, which relates, if you just look at the verse right before this passage starts, Matthew 3, 17, the last verse of Matthew chapter 3, this is when Jesus is being baptized and the father says from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He has the designation of God's son. Satan comes right at him with that designation. If you're really the son of God, then demonstrate it by turning these stones into bread. Demonstrate it by doing something for your own benefit, he says. The devil, here, here's what the devil is doing. He's saying, Jesus, use your privilege so that you can avoid pain. He says, Jesus, pull rank in order to flex your power and not have to depend on the Father. And the devil, you, you, know, you know the word that we translate devil? Do you all know? It's, it's diablos. 
Diabolos. It literally means accuser, slanderer, and deceiver. And it's, and it's the word that we get the English word diabolical from. Okay? So think about Satan's schemes. Much of his agenda and his tactics focus specifically on accusing us and slandering us. Satan's scheme is primarily to tell us lies about us. Tell us lies about us. Now, let me clarify something here too, because right away we go to negative lies. Satan wants to tell us how awful we are. Satan wants to tell us how weak we are. Satan wants to tell us how we really don't trust God. Satan wants to tell us how we really don't have faith. Satan wants to accuse us all the time. So you need to understand that Satan also tells us very positive lies too, but they're lies nonetheless. You are wonderful. You have all power. You can make this decision on your own. You don't need to depend on God. Why would you need God? You're, you're who you are. You're magnificent. You're wonderful. Those are lies as well. And the problem is, of course, is that we believe all of these lies. You have to be perfect. You have to please everybody. You have to say yes all the time. These are lies. Straight from Satan. He's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He slanders us. But he's always going right at our weakness. And here, you, you got to say, he's really good at this. He's better than you and I are at this. He's really good at this. But he goes at our weakness. He knows our weaknesses. Now, he's not omniscient like God. He doesn't know inherently what our weaknesses are other than sin. But he watches us, and he can tell by our behavior where our weaknesses is. He knows that Jesus is hungry, so he goes after that. And he knows your tendencies, and he knows my tendencies as, as well. Whatever those tendencies are, our unhealthy relationship with money, our misguided sexual pro proclivities, he knows about our fondness for gossip, blather, and drama. He knows about our self-righteous inclination toward outrage. He knows about our pride. He knows them all. The, the devil will rarely come at you and me in, in our areas of strength or expertise other than to tell us that we have that strength or expertise to distract us and to make us weak in those areas. How many of you recognize that some of your greatest assets in life are actually some of your liabilities, depending on the context? I'm pretty good at rhetoric and arguments, at deconstructing arguments. I'm pretty good at that. I, I studied it in graduate school for two and a half years. I teach it, okay? When I'm arguing with Jackie, though, it actually becomes a liability. <laughs> it becomes a liability because I focus more on the argumentation than on who she is as a person and what she's trying to accomplish. You see how that is? And Satan will use that. What she just said isn't logical, Frank. Go right at that. Okay. That's why I'm so familiar with the couch at times. Okay. So, <laughs> so how does Jesus respond? He responds in simplicity and power. He just responds with God's wisdom, with truth. It's so simple yet so profound and, and so powerful, but here you go. You kind of got to know it in order to be able to use it. Jesus says, listen, I know from where I get my value. I know from where my power comes. I know where my joy lies. I know where my flourishing and my fulfillment comes. And it's nothing that you have to offer. Not one thing that you have to offer can give me what I already have from the Father. So you and I need more of this simple but powerful grounding in our lives. 
By the way, when Jesus quotes scripture, guess what? It's from Deuteronomy, the wilderness experience of the Israelites. So the illusions continue. The next three verses, five through seven, the the second temptation. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. This is about 300 feet up, okay? Bird's eye view. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil does not give up easily. And he also smart enough to change tactics. Satan is the hockey coach who develops a game plan. They play the first period, and at the end of the first period they're down two two, two goals to none. So the coach goes in in between periods, and he says, all right, we need a new game plan because this one's not working. Changes the game plan. They go out for the second period. They score three goals and hold the other team to zero goals. They go into, uh, in, into the uh, second intermission with a three to two lead. That's what Satan's doing. He's a good coach, and he's coaching himself. He's changing his tactics. So the devil says to himself, I can quote scripture too. I know how to quote scripture. Watch this. So he quotes scripture to Jesus, Psalm 91. But two things we need to know about this. We need to know, first of all, that Satan does know God's word, but he just doesn't believe it or appreciate it. He knows God's word, but he doesn't believe it or appreciate it. You ever met anybody like that? Knows God's word really well, but they don't believe it or appreciate it, but they're willing to bring it up? And second of all, Satan quotes scripture woefully out of context and with a misapplication of mammoth proportions. You ever know somebody to misquote scripture, quote it out of context in order to further their own agenda? You know, by the way, pastors can do that too. Be careful. Jesus answers again with God's word. And once again, he answers from Deuteronomy, the wilderness experience. The difference, of course, is that Jesus doesn't quote scripture out of context and he doesn't misapply it. And with it, he drives Mr. Satan back to the drawing board. So here we go, last four verses. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and and and, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The adversary comes back one more time, and it's so interesting. Many scholars, including R.T. France, claim that of the three temptations, this was the most difficult for Jesus. Why is that? Again, think of humanity, and then consider this. Satan is offering Jesus a kingdom without the patience needed to wait for the kingdom, nor the sacrifice needed to obtain the kingdom. He's offering the kingdom without the patience and without the sacrifice. How about it, y'all? We're on board with that, aren't we? Don't we want our kingdoms without the patience, without the sacrifice, without the mission, without the work? Isn't that what we want? Everything we want, everything we desire, all of our goals and dreams, and to have them without waiting and without sacrifice. My brothers and sisters, yes. I am preaching now. 
That's what we want. But instead, Jesus quotes God's word one more time. And it's here you go. Listen to this. This is important. Is knowing the Bible valuable simply for the sake of knowing the Bible? Not a trick question, and the answer is no. Of course not. Remember, Satan knows Scripture too. So if all you know is Scripture, all you're qualified to be is a demon. I hope you understand that. James says the same thing in his letter. Says the same thing. The reason we pursue God's word is in order to know who God is, to know his character, and to understand what his call on our life is. That's why we know God's word. And that's why we pursue it. It's very similar to prayer. Do we pray for the sake, simply, of getting what we want? And the answer, again, is no. We pray to become dependent upon God and not ourselves. So, again, what does any of this have to do with love? We've already mentioned a few things, and we're going to get there in just a second, but let's think a little bit further about some of the items that we've talked about here. One of the things that struck me as I worked my way through this in this passage is how Jesus was able to exercise authority without pulling rank. He was able to exercise authority without pulling rank. And think about it. He didn't just say, to Satan when he comes first, the first day. He didn't just say, yeah, I'm God, I'm great, you're not, I have status, you don't, now get out of here. He doesn't do that. He actually engages. See, you and I, and, and remember, I was in the marketplace for 20 years before I started doing this, so I get this. When we have position and status and we perceive that we have power, we tend to wield it and we tend to pull rank. And that's the world that we live in. But Jesus doesn't. He remains... He remains steadfast. If anyone could have pulled rank, think about Jesus' power and status and position. If anyone could have pulled rank, it's Jesus. He doesn't. He remains faithful to the mission. He remains steadfast. Yes, he's humble, but he's steadfast. Here you go. That takes trust. That takes faith. That's why this really is a walk of faith. For every one of us, trust is necessary. Here you go. Even and especially when the evidence doesn't bear any resemblance whatsoever to what we'd like to have turn out. That's what trust and faith are. If the results were absolutely clear and we could see them all the time, it wouldn't take any faith or trust. We'd just know. And that's love too. How many of you really think that you could love without trust. Not necessarily trusting the person you're loving, but trust God that you're doing the right thing by loving. Without trust, there is no love. Love itself is an act of trust. It's an act of faith. Those of you who are married, when you got married, were you guaranteed that this was going to be perfect? If you did, I'd like to talk to your premarital counselor because they have issues. Think of it this way. Jesus could have pulled the God card here. He could have pulled rank, but instead he submitted to his humanity. Isn't that interesting? God submitted to his humanity. If he had pulled rank, he would have won, but it would have messed up his mission. 
It would have stopped the process that we have now so that we can understand more about Jesus. It would have stopped the process of him going to the cross and being resurrected. All of that would have stopped. And his mission is outlined for us in in the letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. In chapter 2, Jesus did not consider his godness something to be clung to. He didn't consider his divinity something that he should hang on to at any expense, but rather he humbled himself and he became a human. And not only did he humble himself and become a human, but he humbled himself to the point of obedience so that he might die on a cross. That's pretty incredible. And let's summarize and dive even deeper on how Satan operates and how Jesus operates, all the while remembering that what I'm about to list are deeply rooted character issues for each. So this has relevance to us today, clearly. Look how Satan operates. Flattery. He appeals to our ego. Don't you love it when people appeal to your ego? Oh, shucks. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, this week I overheard somebody say, And I thought this was a great insight. He said, you know, I really think my ego needs to go on a diet. Uh, Satan gives you and I permission and even exhorts us to use our power. You have power? Why don't you use it? Just go ahead and use it. It's okay. Come on. He encourages indulgence. Uh, Satan also advocates for exhibitionism and fame or what is commonly known in today's world as meism. Satan suggests experimentation. Experimentation is not necessarily bad, but he's always suggesting experimentation that only can have bad results. Satan suggests, uh, doesn't suggest, he constructs a faux spiritualism, a fake spiritualism. He's really good at that. Satan depends on himself, and Satan promotes transactionalism, quid pro quo, which we really like. We like transactionalism because you and I in our minds can always rationalize how we don't owe anybody anything, but everybody owes us something. That's that's why we like transactionalism. Now, for many of us, this is right in our grill, which it should be, because we're confronted by this list, because we know our tendency is to lean into every single one of these characteristics that is Satan's characteristic, every one of us. And this may be the single reason that this is such an important passage. It's not just about temptation, testing, and challenge, but it exposes our corrupt nature. And this nature of ours is what impedes genuine gospel love. This nature of ours needs to be overcome by the power of the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit in order to love the way Jesus loves. Now look at Jesus' standard operating procedure. He knows the word of God. And not only that, but he embraces the promises of God. He, He accepts the reality that genuine life is not one dimensional. By that I mean genuine life is not just about our physical needs. He accepts that reality. Genuine Genuine life goes deeper than just our physical needs. Uh, Jesus depends on God. He depends on the Father. Jesus stands firm. 
I mentioned this earlier, he's steadfast. Steadfastness, I would argue, is the single most underrated characteristic of a Christ follower. And then he's patient. Jesus is patient. Uh, later on in Matthew, Jesus is being crucified. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Imagine the patience it took right in that moment. I would have come down right off the cross and said, I am the Son of God, let's talk. You and I, pinch that little head right off his neck, okay? <laughs> Jesus is in for the long game here, okay? So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The irony is that he was trusting. He was trusting there. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the, two, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. That took tremendous patience. Okay? Now those characteristics of Jesus make absolutely no sense in our world. They just don't. But that list of Jesus, all of those things, that's love. Genuine love starts with and is rooted in God. Genuine love recognizes that life is not one-dimensional. It's not just pleasure and convenience and feelings and happiness. Genuine love stands firm. It's steadfast and wise, and genuine love is patience. One more. David Massey used to tell me, I don't like it when you go to other passages during your sermon. It's very inconvenient. So I'm doing this to just rile the, the spirit of David, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Okay, so far I'm like seven for seven on these things, okay? I'm in trouble right now. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish, childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You ever thought about why Paul says the greatest of these three is love? Because love is the outward manifestation of faith and hope. You see that? 
It's the fruit of a life that's filled with faith and hope. And that's what we're called to. Now, consider this. Some people think of Jesus' love in terms of strength. And I think this is based on how we're kind of wired, how you're wired as a person. So you might think of Jesus' love in terms of strength. So we lean into Jesus' love being characterized by things like faithfulness, courage, power, and sacrifice, and sovereignty, and justice. Others think of Jesus' love in terms of tenderness. So we lean into Jesus' love being characterized by things like compassion, empathy, mercy, sensitivity, warmth, and awareness. And what we need to understand is that Jesus' love is all of those. His love is strong and his love is tender. And again, we're challenged by this passage because we believe and we've been taught incorrectly. We've been taught in our culture that, that people are basically good. And as a result, you talk to people. Many people don't really have a category for evil. Unless it's political evil, then everybody has a category for evil. But we really don't. As a result, people get blindsided by evil and its reality. And then we have to scramble to explain it. Have you heard some of the explanations for evil? It's really just an illusion. It's not really happening. I've heard that. It's happening to me, and it feels really bad to me. So you're saying that I'm deluded. Well, yeah, I guess. Okay? So we can't name it. We can't explain it. We don't realize that only Jesus can be victori victorious over it. Do you understand that Jesus beat death? That's a vision of his vict victory over evil. Okay? So what we've been taught in our culture is that we can fix anything, we can prove anything, we can discover anything, we can explain anything, and so all we need to do is depend on us. Let's just depend on us. We can fix it. How long has our government been trying to fix things? And some people say that our government is um, the, the worst in the world with the exception of every other government. They can't get it right. That's not a criticism, that's just reality. We've been taught in this world, in spite of the empirical evidence to the contrary, we've been taught that we're better than God and we certainly don't need God. And therefore, we've already lost every time evil comes and confronts us. You realize that? If you don't think there's evil in this world, if you don't believe in Satan, you've already lost. In fact, he's not even that interested in you. We believe that the way to defeat evil or injustice or things we don't like is with more. That's our, that's our motto. More money, more education, and more outrage. Consider this. We are the wealthiest, most educated, and most outraged people in history, and frankly, we suck at battling evil. When are we going to wake up, y'all? Jesus wants us to wake up. Jesus wants us to wake up. Paul Miller reminds us of this in his book. Satan doesn't come to us as an ugly, scary character with horns and a tail and sharp, angry teeth, but rather he comes as a friend and as a counselor of enlightenment who desired to be equal with God. Now think about all the hype and everything that sells in our culture, and literally that should scare the snot out of us. Here's the beauty Jesus shows us. He demonstrates his love, his strength, and his tenderness simultaneously by going to the cross and emerging victorious three days later through the resurrection. 
He has demonstrated the love and the victory. Jesus does what no one can do and no one can do apart from God. We want that power for all the wrong reasons. We want that power for all the wrong desires. But Jesus imputes that power to us simply as the power to live no matter what comes at us so that we can endure these trials. And that includes physical death because that's coming for every one of us as well. So many of us were reminded of this at the service, the memorial service on February 2nd for Tom Schrader. When you, when you look at Tom's life on the whole, if anybody ever had the right to say, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate God, it was Tom Schrader. The number one question that Tom, uh, I'm sorry, the number one question that Tom's daughters, Haley and Sarah, got during his entire ministry was, is Tom really like this at home? And the answer is yes. We just don't laugh at him as much because we're used to his humor. But yeah, he's the same person at home. Tom really believed. Tom finished well. You know, that last month of his life, his greatest concern was that people would see him hanging on to Jesus. That was his greatest concern. How was he ministering through his death to other people? Tom depended on God, and that's why Tom could love the way he did. It's what you and I truly and desperately need. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for including this passage in this book so that we could see how love is manifest um, through our dependency upon you and through the fact that we have to go through trial. Trial and tribulation and challenge. That is a severe form of test, but it's, but it's a test that we need. So God, help us to have our faith tested so that we might become people of perseverance, patience, hope, steadfastness, all of those things that you call us to. We ask that in Jesus' name.